All right, everyone, I think we should begin. Uh, good afternoon and welcome. I'm delighted to see everyone here. This is uh, fragmentation, uh, recovery, loss, and degradation, although those tend to migrate their order <laughs> in various instantiations of this panel, which feels actually uh, uh, rather fitting. Um, so I'm really privileged and, and delighted to uh, be organizing the panel this afternoon. And uh, in keeping with the theme of fragmentation, we ourselves have become somewhat fragmented. Uh, unfortunately, our moderator, Professor Arthur Barr, is not able to be here in the flesh today. He sends his, uh, he sends his regrets and apologies. Um, so I will be <coughs> moderating, introducing our speakers. And if time permits, I will also read a few remarks that Professor Barr prepared in response to the panelists' papers, but I'm going to prioritize making sure we have time for Q&A for everyone who's here. So I'll sort of play that by ear. Um, great. Well then, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first panelist. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Jane Rage. Okay. Um, <laughs> I figured that out by now. <laughs> um, that's who I am. And much more importantly uh, is our first panelist, uh, Neve Elam. Uh, Neve received his PhD in Egyptology from Yale in 2014. That same year, he joined the Metropolitan Museum of Art as an assistant curator in the Department of Egyptian Art. He recently co-authored a book on Egyptian ancient Egyptian scribes, a cultural exploration, which came out last May with Bloomsbury. And his paper today is entitled uh, Gamwesh, <laughs> um, representing ancient fragmentary texts and their lacuna. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you, Jane, for the introduction <laughs> and for the invitation to come and speak to you today. I'm very, very glad to be talking about papyrus, actually, kind of join another kind of book or text to the discussion. Um, it's a rather difficult angle from here, but I'll try to um, see what I'm talking about from there. Um, so when I talk about Gemwesh, it's actually an Egyptian expression I'm going to discuss a bit later in my uh, talk today. More specifically, I'll be talking about one specific document, one specific papyrus from the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and through it discuss, discuss kind of the ancient Egyptian appreciation, appreciation to um, lacuna and fragmentary texts, and how we, I'll try to get to the, to the question that really bothers me, which is how do we as curators, as people who work with those kind of texts, then project it or discuss it with the public that comes and looks at those kinds of papyrus. What options we have and what limitations more than actually options we have when trying to discuss those issues. So what you're looking at is actually a small part of a larger papyrus. And here you see here it's 72 feet long papyrus in a, a Metropolitan Museum of Art. And here it's on display as it was about a year ago. Then there was a renovation of the galleries. That it was actually completely demolished almost. Um, here you see the bare walls. And then uh, through a process it was deinstalled, uh, treated, and then reinstalled. Um, yeah, in new cases, and this is how it looks today. Uh, and through the process of the reinstallation, we then also thought about the new display and new labels that go around, as you can see, along the papyrus. Um, and also, it was a great opportunity for me. So the main person who worked on that was Janice Cameron, another uh, curator from the department. 
And I was lucky to work on, on a translation. I'm a specialist of this kind of text that you see here, but also any inscribed material in a department of Egyptian art. So hieroglyph writing in the Mordic later on. Um, the, te the text has wonderful vignettes uh, that you see here, line drawn. Um, here is the adoration of the rising sun. And then also wonderful crocodiles. Um, and if you, you could actually still see here um, kind of the preliminary red lines that were drawn before the, the final uh, version was made. And then what really intrigued my interest in this papyrus, or let, let's say it a bit differently, books of the dead, you have too many. At one point, it becomes really boring to look at them. They're kind of repetitive. Especially in this period of time, it's the same version again and again. There's very little surprises, though, of course, there are variants here and there. Um, this book of papyrus really surprised me by offering a first column that is completely empty. You could see the lines being drawn, but nothing was written here. And then the first, the second column actually starts mid-sentence. Um, and then you have lacuna, you have spaces all around the first four columns, and then it continues as usual, without any spaces. And kind of, that was a moment of revelation and also confusion for me, why to do that? Um, I should specif specify the script is called Hieratic. Uh, this is the main script which is Egyptians use throughout history for administration, religious texts, literary texts, um, love poetry, anything you can think of, written on papyri. Um, and then in this period of time, they mainly use it for religious purposes and for funerary texts, and that's what you're looking at here. And it's written from right to left. That's another issue that we should remember. So the main question that then brought me to ask is, what do we see here? Why do we see those spaces? Why do we see a, a empty, um, completely empty column? Um, it doesn't show. Okay, so just more generally about Book of the Dead. It's of course, as you can imagine, or I'm not surprised to hear, it's a misnomer, it's a modern conception of calling it the Book of the Dead. It's really neither a book nor related only to dead people in a way. Um, it, it's supposed to help the deceased in the afterlife. So that's the main point about it. And of course, it's not a book, it's a papyrus, 72 feet long papyrus. Uh, we have different versions of it. The ancient Egyptian title that you sometimes see is going forth by, uh, by day or on the day, um, and see their legs here. These are related to the verb of going. So it's really about movement and the ability to go back and forth between the afterlife and this world. And one of the spells, one of the chapters within the text, talks about, as for any spirits for whom this book is made, in the word book here is translation, it's actually mejat, which is something like a scroll. Um, his soul goes forth with the living, it goes forth by day. It is mighty among the, the gods. So it's really about the, it gives, it's supposed to help the deceased in the afterlife to be able to continue to exist, continue to live, join the sun god in a journey, and then come back to the world of the living um, and be part of society in a way. Um, for that purpose, it's, it provides the reader or the owner of the papyrus with very specific information to be ready for what's going to happen. If you think that when you die, things become simpler, you're wrong. It becomes actually more complicated. The afterlife is a very, compli very complex world that you need to navigate. Some earlier coffins even have maps of how it should look like. Um, our, our version has these different scenes and texts that relate, give that information. For example, this is the 
maybe one of the most famous scenes that you can find with books of the dead that relates to the judgment of the deceased. Um, you can see in the center there's a weighing of the heart. One side is the heart and the other side is a feather-like feature that it's really hard to see here. And your heart's supposed to be as kind of as balanced as, or as the way as, as a feather, or and it's a symbol for justice and order in Egyptian. So, and of course, everybody's gonna pass that, but if not, someone is waiting, the devourer, the monster called Amamit here, um, she will swallow the heart and bring your second death, and eternal death. But also, you should be prepared because there's a lot of specific knowledge to know. And for example, there's a series of gates you're supposed to pass. And those gates, you have to know the names of the gatekeepers and the different people who occupy or creatures that occupy those spaces. And they would ask you to pronounce their names. So you really know, need to know very specific information. If you get it wrong, you won't pass. And that's why it's really interesting for me to think about those, all those lacuna, missing parts of the text that occur in the text are supposed to be extremely important and its efficacy is supposed to be extremely important for you to exist. Now, another part that I should mention is that when we talk about a book, we, we may think about some cohesive um, document. This is, of course, wrong. Uh, what we have here is an amalgamation of different spells. We call them spells that may be utterances. Maybe that's a better word for it. Um, and they come from different parts of the ancient Egyptian history. So some of them actually are written on the pyramid, are found in pyramids. Uh, of the Old Kingdom, so about 2,000 years before Papyrus. Um, some of them you can find a bit later were written on coffins, and here we have, it's hard to see, but they're written in columns there. We often call them coffin text, which is another problematic name. And then some of them also written on other objects and then buried with the deceased, so we'll be finding the tomb. So for example, here we see it's kind of scarab, I'll show the other side in a minute, and uh, what we call a shabti, kind of a figure that is buried with this deceased and supposed to help him to avoid work in the afterlife because they're supposed to continue working. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> so this is the scarab and here we have a spell, the heart spell that then also appears in the Book of the Dead. So there's a lot of redundancy also. A lot of different elements are supposed to help you in the afterlife. And then some of the texts also appear on mummy bandages, like the one that you see here. And then on tomb walls, so really there's a lot of elements. And then on papyrus, this is a, about 1,000 years earlier to papyrus. It's a long tradition. It's one of the maybe the maybe the canon that we have of text in ancient Egypt. It really we can see a development. We can see a moments in which it becomes more standardized. And this is rather earlier to that standardization. But you see here uh, the deceased offering to Osiris, and it's a wonderfully also fragmentary text. And part of our fermentation also is related to the history, kind of understanding what kind of function this kind of text had. So I really like this mummy mask, so it would cover uh, part of the mummy. And I don't know if you can see, but there are bits and pieces here and here of papyrus stuck to it. So at one point, this is a reconstruction of how it looked like this Nicholas Reeves published a wonderful article about it. Apparently, in some cases, we can actually see the papyrus being laid over the mummy and then being glued to it. At one point, someone removed the papyrus, but leaving those marks on it. So those texts are not to be read by everybody. It's not won't exist in the library. It won't exist. It would be specifically made for a tomb. We can maybe ask questions that we do not know how to answer about how, who produced it, 
and where it was produced and what we can think about workshop for example but beyond that we are very limited in our knowledge our specific book of the dead as I mentioned actually starts with an empty column and um, and when I mention a workshop one of the things that people mention and sometimes you can actually see that that there's a production of manuscripts before even there's an, the, there is an owner or a buyer or commissioner to acquire those pieces. So what you sometimes can see that there is, they leave blanks, spaces for the name of the deceased, and then fill it out later. And that was some of, one of the suggestions about Alpires, that this guy, nice guy, Infotech came, and he had such a problem. He had either a very, very long title including very often they give their parents' names. Um, so this was Iris, priest of Horus, who sanctified the body servant, and I don't know the whole thing. And, but then he had also shorter versions of the name throughout the text. So in some spaces they could fit the name, in some places they couldn't, and left those spaces that stand out but actually mean nothing. Um, this makes sense. And you can see here an, an example, kind of the most common thing that you find around the text is around here. This is where the, the title of the mother, the mistress of the house, and her name appears here. Um, so between, sorry, between, and again here you see, between her title and her name, you can see those, um, those spaces. So it's a possibility that, oh, it's just moving now. <laughs> um, it's a possibility that, um, that in order to kind of fill out those gaps, they just placed parts of her name and kept that space without, again, meaning anything. Which is a nice suggestion and maybe very real and, re and reasonable for other texts, but part of my project was actually to look at dipping and re-dipping re of the pen, so following the pen, which clearly goes us move forward. Um, we can sometimes see instances in which the, uh, the scribe or the copies re-dip the pen. So the, the pen kind of weakens, the ink weakens, and then you can see it making it's becoming uh, darker again. So you can see here, this is the word I, I am. It's really much darker than the name appears before. And it comes after her name, so maybe indeed someone left the name, left a blank and wrote I, and filled out the name later. Um, and this is another instance in which you can see a reading of the pen, and her name, or his name, sorry, appears here, and another reading <coughs> here, which, again, doesn't really, it may, may be possible that this suggestion is real. But then when you look at certain examples, uh, this is a spell of not letting Osiris Infotep eat something in the necropolis, and that something is very often um, excrement. Um, he's supposed to you can see his name here, so immediately after the kind of title, a spell of not letting him eat, and the verb usually comes before um, the name or the noun. Um, you can see that part of his title, his name, continues here, but the sentence continues in the necropolis without redeeping the pen. So it's the same kind of thickness that you see before. What I would like to suggest then is that there, that kind of theory of um, adding the name later doesn't quite make sense when you look at the examples. And I'm going to show a couple of more examples. Um, 
here. Let's just move forward. Um, as I mentioned, the Shaktis, you should have many of them because, there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of work to be done. And sometimes you will be buried with really almost dozens of them. And then they would have officials overseeing their work to make sure that they do the work for you. Um, so in addition to in addition to instances in which it's, it is clear that um, the scribe wasn't just adding the name later. You can see cases, sorry, that was what I wanted to show here, I apologize. Uh, we can see instances in which the part of a spell is added later. So I'm, 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 this slide is supposed to show you that. We can clearly see how the name was written before the whole script was added. So or what, in the process. Okay, Shaptis. And you can see also occurrences in which it is clear that uh, the scribe or the copies is making kind of uh, maybe creative or productive usages of spaces. This is a spell of not doing something in the necropolis, so this is supposed to be the uh, Shakti spell, but there's a problem. Those Shaktis, Shaktis are supposed to do work for you, not not to do work for you. So there's a negation here that doesn't make sense. Instead of writing the word Shakti, it just leaves space. So the question here, and I don't have anything to offer but a speculation, is that either he was copying a text that had a mistake, realized the mistake, and didn't want to write a spell that's wrong, and left a space, or that he himself made a mistake and didn't want to erase it, and just preferred to leave it uncompleted. But either way, he chose here to incorporate what seems to be a, uh, a space, instead of writing the whole spell or the, as it should be. So now I'm going to, in the next couple of minutes, talk about Gemwish and why I mentioned it in the title. Um, this kind of fascination with um, lacunas, with spaces, is not something that you need to this text. And I believe that his choice to do so, to incorporate spaces, is part of a bigger phenomenon of fascination with lacunas in ancient times. So here we see a spell, uh, sorry, a medical text. And at the end, you can see I marked those. That's how you write Gemwish in ancient Egyptian, um, believe me. So in s the meaning of Gemwish is found missing. And it's very interesting to think about the medical text instead of actually giving you the recipe and completing with something that makes sense or looking at another text is actually leaving that space saying, I don't know what's here. The text I was looking at was found missing, basically. So it's, it's referring to our old text or some original text that it was copying. Same with text that you, that you find on uh, royal tombs, on walls of royal tombs. Some of them, as the edition hand shows you here, has Gemwesh written. So these kind of texts are texts of the what we call the Amduats, the uh, world of it's, it's kind of the equivalent of books of the dead, just to, only for the world, um, the king basically, and it's supposed to give you specific information. And instead of finding out from other tombs what that part of the spell should be. It actually says Gemwish. Why do, do they do that? And here's another example. We have an important person, a Mulchotok son of Hapu, remember his name. Um, he's a very important figure and was later deified in ancient Egypt and worshipped. And he speaks about, kind of, he gives his specific knowledge um, and specific important character in this kind of uh, wonderful statue. And he says, 
I'm the one who finds out the phrase, though it be in a lacuna. So he may be the first person interested in textual criticism. <laughs> and there are not many people like him, I can be honest. Um, though in another book of the Dead Papyrus, we do find at the end someone saying, it is finished from beginning to end, as it was found written, copied, checked, examined, and weighed from sign to sign. So this is also maybe our idea of how it should look like, kind of textual criticism, checking things. And those, of those scribes, those copies, wanted to show that when they were copying, they were authentic about the copying. They made sure, they made sure sign by sign, and if there was a mistake, or there was a missing part, they introduced that lacuna into the text. Now, quickly, just showing this example. Uh, this is the uh, Shabaka stone. It has a very important text. And it is said to be a copy of a text from ancient times. Now, if you look at the uh, grammar, it's not from ancient times. Or it's questionable that it's from ancient times. It was clearly written to look at it as if it is an ancient text we copied. But the text also says something interesting about itself. It says, it is as something which the ancestors had done, being eaten by worms. So why copy a text and show it as if it's eaten by worms? It's to show that you're copying an ancient text. Antiquity here is authority. It gives power to the text. It's very possible, I would like to suggest, that the scribe of the Book of, uh, book of the Death of Imhotep wanted to do the same thing, to make the text look as if it's copying an ancient text. Uh, introduce all the examples that you find in others, lacunas, spaces, missing parts, even though it's not. So, thank you very much. Great, all right, so uh, our next speaker will be Chris Driggers, uh, who studies pre-Columbian art history at the University of Chicago, with projects ranging from ancient Mesoamerica to the Andes. He is the current recipient of a Ford Foundation pre-doctoral fellowship. He received his BA from Yale in 2011, and has held a curatorial fellowship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a research assistantship in African art at the Yale University Art Gallery, and has served as development coordinator for the McNay Art Museum in San Antonio, Texas. So please join me in welcoming Christopher. Thank you, Jane. Okay. It's such a pleasure to be here. I want to thank Jane for organizing this panel, and um, here we go. Between 1570 and 1581, the Dominican friar Diego Duran assembled a group of scribes and painters in Mexico City to create a lavishly illuminated manuscript that treated the Aztec past. The book they produced, known today as the Codex Duran, has come to be recognized as one of the most important sources on Aztec history. Across three treatises, a history, a book of gods and rites, and a calendar, the manuscript held today at the Biblioteca Nacional de España provides some of the earliest and most comprehensive data on Aztec politics and religion. The Durand manuscript was not its maker's first attempt creating a book about the Aztec past. Contained within the Durand Codex that we have today, we find the fragmentary pieces of an earlier related bookmaking project, a shadow manuscript, pre probably a previous draft of the Codex. About half of the manuscript's paintings were cut from that earlier book and pasted directly onto the pages of the drawn manuscript that exists today. 
imperfectly adhere, some of these glued-in paintings have been lost, and we can only guess what they might have shown based on the text that surround them. Sometimes, the old illustrations were bizarrely positioned as a book, but even these seemingly haphazard inclusions of fragments from the earlier project offers a view onto the character and interests of the earlier manuscript. It was more than just pictures that have survived as well. We can still see bits of the original text that remain on the back of the paintings when we hold the pages up to a light source, giving us a partial but nevertheless tantalizing <coughs> view of what the original manuscript of the Durand manuscript might have been like. In my talk today, I propose taking a close look at the fragments of the old Durand manuscript that survived in the new. In studying these fragments of a cannibalized manuscript, my goal is to ask two questions of the manuscript. First, I will propose comparing the new book with the pieces of the old version in order to understand what changed between the two versions. Second, I will offer a proposal for how the new manuscript treated the pieces of the old one in light of those changes. As we'll see, there is a new argument about how Aztec religion evolved over time, introduced into Duran's bookmaking project between the two versions. This new historical argument contradicted some of the scenes depicted in the old paintings. Accordingly, I argue that while the makers of the Duran recycled some of the old paintings into their new compositions, they found ways of reworking the material in order to either eliminate images that contradicted their arguments, or at least to draw their representation of the past into question. Now, in looking for the ways in which the Duran manuscript changed between its old and new versions, Codipological study gives us some insight into what the older manuscript was like. From the study of the paper, we know that the manuscript changed between formats, or changed formats between versions. Elizabeth Hill Boone argued that the paper of the pasted-in paintings was oriented in the way typical for a quarto manuscript, while the new book was made in folio format, so that the manuscript grew substantially in size over time. On some folios, we find entire quarto pages glued into the new manuscript from the old. In the opening on the screen, we see that the maker of the new book seemed unconcerned with hiding the fact that the book had changed, inserting a whole quarto page from the old manuscript sideways into the new book. There was also a significant change in style between the old and new paintings. Connoisseurial study of the painter's hands suggests that different artists worked on each version of the manuscript and the artist who worked on the new version introduced new pictorial elements that had come into fashion in the later 16th century. The new Duran paintings contained elements of strap work, grotesques, framing devices, and forms of shading that evoke the visuality of printed pages, of printed images, excuse me, all elements that were absent in the earlier version. The newer paintings crowded their compositions with multiple figures and epic battles and throne scenes. An article by Christopher Couch compared this to the illustration of late 16th, century, late 16th century French Bibles. Pictorially, the new paintings incorporated elements of contemporary visual culture that had been missing in the earlier book. The backs of the pasted-in paintings still contain text, and although they only give us a partial sense of what that older text was, it's still possible to make a few generalizations about it. Visually, the text of the previous version was quite different. The old manuscript was not split into columns, and on the back of one painting, we see that the scribes drew initial letters that added decoration to the text. In terms of that text's content, 
Previous studies have confirmed that the passages hidden on the backs of the Tastevin paintings nearly all ended up in the later version of the Duran Codex. So that as Duran incorporated that earlier set of texts and paintings, it also retained a large part of the manuscript's older message. And yet, even so, we can confirm that there are elements of the new text that weren't in the earlier version. The new version of the Duran manuscript contained a historical treatise that seems to have been largely absent in the earlier version, and perhaps entirely absent. Previously, Codex Duran most likely did not contain a history at all. In its original phase, the project was conceived only as a treatment of Aztec religion and of the calendar. The history was then added in the second version, and possibly even prompted the creation of the new manuscript. There are a few features of Codex Duran that suggest this possibility. First, all of the paintings in the history section were newly made, painted directly onto the page, whereas nearly all of the paintings for the religious treatises were the ones that were cut from the old manuscript and pasted in. The history paintings may well have been newly produced because there was no older history manuscript to reuse them. Even more convincingly, the chapter numbering in the new manuscript's religious tracts is just a little bit off, with the chapters numbered incorrectly in such a way that we can conclude that the Book of Gods once contained a very, very short historical passage that was later removed when the longer history was added. So between... Um, yeah, so the takeaway here is that between the earlier and later versions of the Codex, the manuscript went from a handbook of gods and ceremonies to a book that paired those interests with a longer treatise on the growth of the Aztec Empire. What I've suggested so far, then, is that between the Codex drawn fragments and its new version, we see a range of transformations. The manuscript got a new format, its paintings changed in style, and its text was significantly enlarged with a new historical tract. These fragments, then, allow us to create a very partial reconstruction of a lost object. But beyond merely testifying to an old version of the manuscript, these fragments also tell us something about the new manuscript, insofar as we see how the book's new makers treated the fragments of the lost object. In what follows, I'll propose that studying how these fragments were incorporated tells us something about both the thinking and the values of the new manuscript's makers. To understand this, we'll need to look closer at some of the paintings. So when Codex Durant added a new historical section and the images on the screen come from this new history, it added a history with a rather specific meaning and a specific motive. It was primarily concerned with how Aztec religion evolved over time, a story important to the evangelization aims of the, of the manuscript's missionary author. The story told by the manuscript is the story of the growth of an empire, but as its history follows the trajectory of the Aztecs, from their origins as a nomadic people to their rise as a complex imperial power, both the manuscript's paintings and its text returned over and over again to the topic of how Aztec religion had changed as a result of circumstances in imperial history. According to Duran's new history, early Aztec peoples did not use images in their religious practice. They directed their worship to the sun and the stars, without broad organization and without spectacular ritual. And so in the image on the screen, on the, in the page that's on the left, um, we have some of these nomadic Aztec ancestors who are people who did not, according to the text, have a religion, who did not have gods. Um, we'll need to keep an eye on that as that changes. 
So these, right, so as I've just said, these older, these pre-Aztec ancestors worshipped the sun and the stars directly uh, without anything resembling spectacular ritual. But later, as the empire grows under the expansionist campaigns of new kings, the Aztecs begin to build religious architecture, carved deity images, and perform spectacular state-level ritual, which is what we're seeing in the image on the left, the right. <laughs> Where religion in the old book of gods and the calendar was treated mostly as a given, the new historical treatise, introduced into the later version of the manuscript, treated Aztec religion as the product of historical processes and referred consistently to these processes in both paintings and texts. The new Duran manuscript thus changed the old manuscript by contributing, it to, by contributing to it a new interest in religion in the deep past. Durand's history would theorize that early Christian missionary work had been conducted by a pseudo-apostle in the form of the feathered serpent, Quetzalcoatl, just as he would theorize a Hebrew origin for the Aztecs, who he believed might have been among the lost tribes of Israel. In unusual textual asides, Durand would mention his interest in signs of that earliest indigenous religious history, bits and pieces of evidence of the deep Aztec past collected in remote and flung and far-flung territory, sometimes by Jerome himself. Deepening his chronology and amplifying his theoretical interest to include prehistoric conversions, Codex Duran came to arbitrate on the Aztec past. Looking at the way in which the older manuscripts' paintings were reused in the new manuscript, we find that it is precisely in addressing this deepest period in Aztec history that the paintings were put to the most unusual use. The old manuscripts' images related to earliest Aztec history were not merely cut and pasted into this book. Rather, these images of the earliest period were cut into small pieces and collaged in, creating new paintings that were both iconographically incoherent and spatially irrational. <laughs> Visually, the collaged paintings are provocative, and they're also difficult. They make unusual cuts into the bodies of figures, or otherwise make them hard to locate in the frame. Early Aztec history becomes the site for the most significant arguments of the new Durang history. Visually, it is also part of the old paintings that becomes the most challenging as the old images of this polemical period are reconfigured in collage. Among these collaged images that confused early Aztec religious history, the images of the pre-Aztec ancestors in caves experienced some of the most thorough intervention. Because the same cave iconography appears in both the old paintings and the new, we're able to note much of what has changed between the two versions. The images represent the Aztecs' earliest predecessors in the Valley of Mexico, a group of nomadic migrants known as the Chichimex, who live in a place of seven caves that <coughs> in Nahuatl bears the name Chico Mosto. In the new painting, the one on the bottom, which is painted directly into the manuscript, we see the seven caves arrayed in lines within a single frame, Inside each cave sit groups of figures, usually one male in each cave, accompanied by one or more females. And interestingly, there were originally more males in some of these caves, but someone later has gone through and stricken out some of the males in these multi-figure groups, um, for reasons I won't go into. But this painting in the new part of the manuscript has copied a similar painting in the old. Once, there was a painting that showed very similar iconography, with figure groups occupying each of seven caves. But as we see now, we note that later, that painting was cut into collaged pieces, the seven caves separated into three cuts, which were worked into new compositions that included other paintings. 
Six of the caves appear in a visually jarring scene next to a sacred bundle of an Aztec god, Huitzilopochtli. While the seventh remaining cave came to share a painting with a group of figures wearing conch-shaped hats, a group that's pretty difficult to identify iconographically. Studying what remains of Codex Duran's older manuscript, then, what we note is that at the same time in which the new manuscript took on an interest in the deep history of Aztec religion, it also chose to make fundamental changes to a series of pre-existing paintings. The images that were changed were images, first, of a bundled god, and second, of people in caves. As Duran took on a new historical argument, it reworked those deity and cave images, both of earliest Aztec religious history, into new configurations that raise questions about their interrelationship, challenging us to understand the painter's motivation. In fact, I believe that the reason that the Duran may have created these new, spatially irrational paintings is that the imagery that they conveyed may have contradicted the argument sustained by the new text. Part of Duran's new historical argument was that in their earliest phases, the Aztecs didn't have gods, as we saw. Yet this idea flew in the face of a much more common notion, and much more widespread, actually, which was that the pre-Aztec peoples were led into Mexico by a version of their god who is wrapped up as a bundle. In other paintings, represented, representing the earliest pre-Aztec ancestors, we find the god Huitzilopochtli wrapped in cloth and carried by a figure known as a god-bearer, a Tiamamanqui in Nahuatl. In its earlier version, a piece of which is here, Duran had painted the gods as these bundles in paintings corresponding to the early Aztec past, suggesting that he may well have originally subscribed to this much more widespread notion. Later, though, his history no longer supported the notion of a deity bundle carried by migrant Aztecs, and the painting had to be changed. This might seem like a rather <coughs> innocuous change, but in fact, it was quite central to Duran's larger argument about the, about the evolution of idolatry. Amid a broad field of intellectual debate about how native religions developed to become polytheistic and emphasize human sacrifice, Duran's later argument was that tyrannical native kings were to blame for leading their people to worship false gods. The argument differed significantly with the major voice of an earlier generation, uh, the Dominican Bartolomé de las Casas, who saw an altogether more redeeming reason for uh, native religion's evolution. He thought that it came out of a good, universal impulse to worship God. The later uh, program by Duran created an argument that blamed political and social circumstances for idolatry. And in this new argument, there would be no room to see the old paintings as they once had existed, implying that they were gods in early Aztec history. What was created in the end was a painting that, in a sense, questioned the very plausibility of the early god bundle. In a manuscript where paintings are otherwise carefully framed, spatially intelligible, and iconographically legible, um, systematic apart from that, the collage compositions are paintings that are difficult, and I would argue they are difficult by design. The painting doesn't read easily in part because it suggests a historical reality that the text has now rejected in its later phase. This collage represents caves and an Aztec god who the later manuscript says could never have been in the same place at once. Echoing this idea, which in part drove the creation of the new manuscript, the painters have queered the relationship between the god and the caves, creating images in which it, has, it was never clear how they are meant to relate, or even whether they were meant to relate at all. The shadow manuscript in Codex Duran, I would argue, is interesting not only because it was lost, but also because it helps us to see more clearly what we still have. 
the manuscript's use and treatment of fragmented paintings shows us how strategically the bookmakers, artists who assembled the reused images into something new, thought about the lost manuscript's potential for continued argumentation. Perhaps most helpfully for us in this session, the Codex Durand's makers tell us that broken, fragmentary things can still be put to good use, even polemical uses, perhaps unimagined by those who first worked on a book now nearly gone. Thank you. And next we have uh, Megan Heffernan, who is an assistant professor of English at DePaul University, where she teaches early modern literature, book history, poetry, and Shakespeare. She's currently worked at work on two projects that investigate the intersection of imaginative writing and textual practices. Delight in Disorder, Making the Poetry Miscellany in Early Modern England, is about the formal poetics of early printed books that have traditionally been understood as disorganized, chaotic, and even damaging to their contents. A new project, Resilient Books, Archival Science in an Age of Precarity, is about the institutional and human history of caring for rare books. Her work has appeared in Shakespeare Quarterly, Modern Language Quarterly, and Modern Philology. Her research has been supported by major competitive grants, including a year-long fellowship at the Folger Shakespeare Library in 2016-2017. So please join me in welcoming Megan. Thanks, Jane, for organizing, and thank you for coming. I'm sort of straddling two projects at the moment, trying to finish up one and turn towards new work. So it's, this is an exciting moment to share my work with you. Our archives of early modernity have been made and remade multiple times, often in the service of cataloging and conservation. From one perspective, these interventions reflect a bibliography that aspires to a complete record of the past, one that yearns for and constructs ideal copies of books that might never have existed in their own moment. Yet read in another light, the 21st century archive testifies to a tremendous loss. The refashioning of textual objects has meant disbinding and then deaccessioning and or even discarding items deemed without value. How might our literary and textual histories account for the things we have cast aside? How can we incorporate the reality of loss into methodologies that are more oriented to idealizations of presence? If bibliography is the study of, in W.W. Gregg's words, pieces of paper or parchments covered with certain written or printed signs, it ought also to ask how we came to determine which arbitrary marks even merit our attention. As subsequent bibliographies have expanded the purview of our reading, encompassing D.F. McKenzie's social processes and the myriad agents involved in textual transmission, it has become ever more urgent to theorize the significance of the gaps, holes, fissures, and fault lines in the stories we tell about our books. We need to excavate a shadow history of all the objects and humans deemed ancillary to dominant textual narratives. My suggestion today will be that this more capacious bibliography requires a new approach to the temporality of our archives. If the discipline of book history has developed increasingly nuanced accounts of change over time, of the diachronic split between current and past textual moments, we need as well to explain how books have endured for centuries developing an eye for the synchronic history of preservation. I'm going today to be thinking through these questions in the context of some manuscripts of the Folger Shakespeare Library that were cast aside at multiple points in their history. Manuscripts in the XD 515 range of call numbers are legal documents that were salvaged from the bindings of other books in the Folger. Some are large pieces of parchment that were once wrapped around the boards of folios, 
or smaller pieces that were provisionally stitched around pamphlet collections. Some are tiny scraps of paper. Some are so faded they can hardly be read. Some are clearly legible. Comprised of only 46 items, the XD515 call range is also textually varied. These manuscripts are multiple different kinds of legal documents, come from all over England, and are written in both Latin and English. What unites the XD515 manuscripts is a history of the inverse relation between textual and material value. In the 17th century, these manuscripts lost their authority as legal instruments, perhaps because the terms of a lease or a marriage settlement had expired, but they gained a new function and a new future as objects that could protect printed books. They were used either in whole or in pieces in the bindings of titles such as John Speed's A Prospect of the Most Famous Parts of the World, Barnaby Rich's Rich's Farewell to the Military Profession, a whole volume of statutes from 1587, Augustine Marlorat's A Catholic Exposition Upon the Revelation of St. John, and George Sand's A Relation of a Journey. Tucked alongside these printed books, the XD515 manuscripts entered the Folger as parasites traveling secretly within the nooks and crannies of a more legible cultural history. In the 20th century, these waste manuscripts were the item left, items left behind by another campaign to save the fragile remnants of the past. The hybrid manuscript and printed books were wearing each other down, eating away at the very text they had once protected. And so they were unstitched, collated, repaired, rebound with modern boards, and recatalogued by the Folger's mid-century curator, Giles Dawson. Including typescript notes about his interventions at the back of each volume, or many of these volumes anyways, Dawson often remarked about the poor quality of the manuscripts, as in this note from 1966. Before it was taken apart and rebound by Arla Now, this work was stabbed and stitched in a leaf from an old manuscript on vellum, with another outer sheet of vellum, perhaps added later, both sheets filthy, tattered, and torn. Now, the story of the XD515 manuscripts might have ended right there, with the privileging of identifiable printed materials over more ephemeral handwritten documents. But the Folger's manuscripts curator, Letitia Yendel, recognized the potential significance of the dirty, decrepit vellum sheets and entered them in the library's collection. What is perhaps most fascinating is that Yendel once again inverted the relation between material and textual value. In her curatorial files, she attempted, to the extent that she could, to identify the contents of these degraded manuscripts, recovering the people, places, and legal relationships they once expressed. Now, I, I need to pause right now to clarify two points about how I want to read these waste materials. The first is that I'm neither criticizing Dawson's interventions nor elegizing the loss of the original hybrid books. The Folger's rebinding campaign was characteristic of a mid-century bibliography that aimed both to make books sturdy and to align them with resources like the short title catalog. What is more, in a longer history of book conservation and care, these repairs were in some ways extensions of the initial decision to disregard the legal contents of the manuscripts and treat them instead as tools to protect books. My second qualification is that the history of recycling that I am tracing today is very partial. As a bibliographic description, waste is a term that is almost as capacious as book. It can designate manuscript or printed texts, items sourced as single sheets or torn out of bound volumes, 
and practices undertaken by everyone from amateur to professional bookbinders. The folder holds examples of all these kinds of waste, often still in their original configurations. I'm focusing today on these disbound manuscripts because I'm interested in how they were rendered waste three times over. First, at the moment when they were repurposed as bindings. Second, at the point in their material life when they were deemed a potential threat to books. And third, when they were cataloged as fragments of deeds and legal documents removed from bindings, manuscript, circa 1300, circa 1700. Due to this confluence of material form and textual content, this was a class of manuscripts that required a new range of call numbers because it did not fit, quite fit elsewhere in the Folgers' schema for its archives. I want ultimately to think about how these manuscripts speak to the influence of the research libraries that were gaining prominence in the 20th century. When the early modern archives that had been scattered by time were consolidated at the Folger, the Huntington, the Newberry, the British Museum, the Bodleian, and multiple other private and public libraries, these institutions influenced the future histories of their holdings. Whatever the shifting techniques and technologies of book care, these waste manuscripts emblematize an orientation to the past that is conditioned by a desire for the future vitality of archives. If we're careful, the institutions that guard the cultural past might also help us to nurture a more inclusive future, one that can acknowledge traces of the myriad and also the often unknowable people who interceded between the point of production and scholarly re-reception of early modern texts. The history of caring for our books can help us expand the purview of our bibliography to accommodate a broader, less linear, and more democratic cultural history. Waste is a human category, the byproduct of how we collectively engage with the physical world. Etymologically, it derives from the Latin wasto for empty and was first applied to uninhabited land. It is the wilderness beyond the reaches of civilization. It came to describe not only land, but also things, the detritus that society has cast aside. The classic definition is Mary Douglas's of dirt as matter out of place. Trash pumps disgust because it is no longer contained by the systems through which we order, classify, and understand the world. Brian Thrill adds that waste matter is not only out of place, but also palpably out of time. The things we call waste exist in an interzone as relics that float between poles of desire and discord. More than mere trash or hazard, a better way to think about waste is to think of it as the unsatisfactory and temporary name we give to the affective relationships we have with our unwanted objects. Waste is the expression of expended, transmuted, or suspended desire. Waste is every object plus time. As the residue of lost value, waste is a negative trace of the worth and significance that it is, has been stripped away from objects as a consequence of time. I'm sorry, I had to put Shakespeare in here, had to. When Shakespeare meditates on waste at multiple points in his sonnets, its discordant temporality becomes a way to capture the instant in which desire consumes itself. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action, and till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, had, having, and in quest to have, a bliss in proof, and proved very woe. In commercial terms, the printer Joseph Moxon calculated the price of his mechanic exercises, calculated waste into the price of his mechanic exercises, a 17th century <coughs> treatise on trades. 
He anticipated an uneven market for the distinct components of his book, which was sold in sheets. This is the bottom. Some trades are particularly affected by customers who desire not the rest, and consequently sooner sold off, which renders the remainder of the unsold exercises unperfect and therefore not acceptable to such as desire all, so that they will remain as waste paper on my hands. Waste is here the leftover remnants of commercial desire, the category that measures the draining out of one kind of value and the simultaneous emergence of another spectral trace of worth in the sheets that Moxon must sell off to a different market. The temporality of waste is neither neat nor continuous. As Shakespeare shows us, desire is fickle and can bend across time, looping back to embrace objects once cast aside. When we read waste, we are reading not only the tattered remnants of the past, but also, and crucially, objects that have endured beyond the point when they should have vanished. Waste carries the past forward into the future precisely because it withstands change. The history of waste is a synchronic narrative of endurance that flouts the natural and cultural forces that should have long ago destroyed materials without currency. How should we archive things that, by all accounts, should have disappeared? Waste has been an important tool for identifying the local history of books, allowing us to situate individual volumes within the world in which they were first bought and read. Neil Kerr and David Pearson have, for instance, traced the use of medieval manuscripts to particular bookbinders in Oxford in the, seventh, in the 16th century. We also have multiple new digital initiatives that aim to restore value to broken books. The Lost Manuscripts Project at the University of Exeter plans, ultimately, to build a union catalog of manuscript fragments in the British Isles, documenting and then digitally reconstructing archives that have been scattered across the centuries. Where such studies position waste within a much longer bibliographic history, I propose a slightly different approach. Instead of recovering the origins of texts, or to use Douglas's and Thrill's terms, instead of putting matter back into its rightful place and time, I'm interested in how waste manuscripts circulated without their original contexts, because the degraded state of these materials holds the ghostly traces of multiple and conflicting systems of value. Eco-critical theories of waste link humans to the objects that surround us, proposing, as Eleanor Johnson has observed, that it is not separable from the external world of work, production, and property. They suggest instead a flow between humans and the physical world, a flow signifying that because no resource can be fully owned by one person, all resources must be protected. Indeed, we might think that human culture itself needs to be protected. In the case of the Folgers XD515 manuscripts, which measure the resources that have been poured into other materials, waste suggests the flow of value between objects and a broader human community, illuminating a collective investment in a cultural past that becomes visible in the instant it is about to vanish. One final example. Giles Dawson's offhand reference to the filthy, tattered, and torn manuscript in his collation formula, to which I referred earlier, is annotated in pencil by another hand that gives XD 515, 11A and B 
as the call number for the vellum sheet that was taken off. I've written about the confused history of this manuscript elsewhere, a story that draws in other printed books and more binding waste, but I don't have time to relate it now. Ask me later, it's a great story. <laughs> Let me instead conclude by telling you about this single item, a document on vellum written in the 17th century scribal hand. The manuscript is torn vertically down the middle where the spine of the printed book would have been, with each half showing a wavy top edge from its first life as an indenture, as well as turned down from its time as a binding. Both halves have been silked. The dirty, fragmentary sheet is a riot of legible and illegible text. Some of it faded from rubbing for centuries against the printed book, and some of it doubled and obscured by offsets from the binding turndowns. But the names of Margaret Owen and Simon Herbert can be made out on both sides of the central tear. Um, the lower left corner is the most visible, uh, most legible, and it also names Mary St. John, John Herbert, Simon, and Simon Griffith, as well as a sum of four pence and five pounds and a place colon. This filthy, tattered, and torn piece of vellum was once a lease, the record of a legal agreement that was no longer needed and that was reused as the wrapper for, I believe, Barnaby Rich's Rich's Farewell to the Military Profession, a prose romance from 1583 that is, in its own way, tattered and torn by the passage of time and the centuries of contact with this waste binding. What is so fascinating about the fragmentary, degraded history of Margaret Owen's lease is that the waste manuscript <coughs> offers a new way to measure the passage of archival time. Where provenance research might measure discrete moments in the life of this document, identifying how it passed from the landholder to the owner of Rich's prose romance, then to the Folger following a sale at Mags Brothers in December 1933, I'm interested in the several hundred years in which the survival of this lease was bound <coughs> up with the fate of Barnaby Rich's Rich's Farewell, rubbing up against a whole other kind of history. Although XD 515, 11A and B, entered the library's collections through an attempt to sort the significant pieces of history from the ephemeral, the result of a bibliographic judgment about the relative value of the different materials, the act of disbinding this book also exposed a more inclusive archive, one that holds evidence of multiple, diverse, and at times inadvertent participants. If Owen was a kind of first conservator of Rich's romance, she was far from the last. She endures as part of an institutional memory that outlives any single individual. Thank you. And our uh, final panelist this afternoon will be Claire Mullaney, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Pennsylvania, where she works on 19th and early 20th century US literature, disability studies, and material text and material culture studies. Her dissertation, American Imprints, Disability and the Material Text, considers how turn of the century writers grappled with the social problem of disability at the level of textual form. She is the 2016 recipient of the Irving K. Zola Award for Emerging Scholars, and her paper is entitled, Not to Discover Weakness is the Artifice of Strength. Dickinson's Fragments Meet Disability Theory. Please join me in welcoming Claire.
Thank you so much, Jane, for that introduction and for organizing the panel and all of you for being here today. Um, I do have some access copies of my talk if anyone would like those also in large print. So just feel free to wave me down or Jane can also pass them out. Um, so I'll just leave them right here. Um, so uh, in the December 6th, 1890 publication of the literary world, Boston literary critic Arlo Bates writes a review of Emily Dickinson's first edition of poems. He describes Dickinson as a woman possessing and possessed by a share of genius, but emphasizes her incapacities. So I, I included the full quote here because it's a bit long. Few fine minds have been more debarred from expression. Whatever may have been the cause, whether a natural bias or long custom, Miss Dickinson was a Laura Brigman, her avenues of spiritual communication being closed or deficient. Even imperfections and errors of her rhymes prove how silent she must have been. Her verse has almost no vocal quality, as if she never sang it or even said it to herself. Yet in the rare cases where it has not this pathetic dumbness, there is heard a sweet note that is pitifully lost in jangling harshness or silence. There is vision in her verse, but it seems to flash and dazzle and be blotted out. Nothing in recent literature is more painful than the pen and paralyzed inspiration of this truly gifted mind incapable of mastery of its art or of itself. It is a case of arrested development for which life seems to offer the only consolation and delayed opportunity." End quote. Bates's condemnations dampened Dickinson's burgeoning fame in the opening decades of the 20th century. Probing her poems for evidence of disability, he references Laura Brigman, a deaf mute, who was also a poet and born just a year prior to Dickinson to reveal Dickinson's inadequacies as a writer, both in mind and body. Bates outlines the deficiencies that arise for Dickinson while writing. Her deficiency of poetic expression, her worthless play with indiscernible rhymes, the blotted out nature of her verse. Like Bates, a number of turn of the century critics predict that, quote, oblivion lingers in the immediate neighborhood of the poet's future, and they deem the, quote, eccentric, dreamy, half-educated recluse and an out-of-the-way New England village with her weird power and ragged lines, largely incompetent in the world of poetic production. While these early critics drew attention to the formal deficiencies in her poetry, Dickinson also lived with a series of impairments. In letters to friends and family, she noted that she experienced, quote, a severe cough and general debility during her childhood, and, quote, the ache to her eyes in her mid-30s. Critics have been quick to label Dickinson with a list of presumed diagnoses, including blindness and Bright's disease, epilepsy, agoraphobia, lupus, and even psychoses. Dickinson's range of presumed medical conditions remain, however, unresolved and subject to reinterpretation. When Dickinson wrote to a close family friend, Mrs. J.G. Holland, in 1884, the physician says, I have nervous prostation, and that's on this slide. Um, possibly I have, I do not know the names of sicknesses. She resists a diagnostic framework. We might liken Dickinson's relation to physical and cognitive impairments to what James only describes as her strangeness. Quote, not the strangeness of Dickinson's self-description, nor her feeling of being different from those around her, but rather the strangeness that is to be found in her poetry, end quote. In other words, disability functions less as a suitable descriptor of Dickinson's body, than as a means of articulating the uneasy relationship between herself and the written text. In his work on Dickinson's early reception, Willis Buckingham suggests that not all reviews of Dickinson in the 1890s were negative, but that in general, quote, it was hard for the 90s to view her as a figure of national importance because of the limited poetic range that's supposed available to a woman who chose such a cloistered life, end quote. 
It is perhaps all too easy, as Buckingham notes, to dismiss Bates's review with the argument that he typifies male establishment critics and fails to depict Dickinson's subversion of 19th century poetic norms. This repudiation, though, comes with the assumption that Dickinson has no relationship to disability. Dickinson's first bad review, as Virginia Jackson describes it, is hard to swallow because it denigrates bodily and cognitive differences, but Bates's attention to disability raises meaningful questions about the extent to which disability was central to Dickinson's poetic practice. When Ralph Waldo Emerson writes that, quote, the poet is the man without impediment, and the full quote um, is on the slide here, he suggests that the poet is destined to overcome disability, to supersede his bodily circumstance through the presumably transcendent powers of language. From her reclusion to her bouts of temporary blindness, most critical and theoretical accounts of Dickinson have tended to privilege her impediments as enabling her writing. But it has been hard for critics to grapple with the limitations that are at the center of her poetic practice. My presentation today posits that disability and authorship need not be opposed, but that they are mutually enforcing. Both bodily and mental impairments determine, in other words, how Dickinson drafted her poems, particularly her late poems, which I'll discuss in a bit. Dickinson shifts our understanding, um, shifts from understanding disability as a specific form of difference, such as blindness, to disability as a universal condition, hence her growing preoccupation with mortality and death. The term disability has been in use since the mid-16th century and was defined as inability, incapacity, and weakness at its most broad, and a physical or mental condition that limits a person's movements, senses, or activities at its most specific. Even by the 19th century, disability did not have the political import that it does today. Impairment was not identity, and for that reason I'm less inclined to assert that Dickinson was disabled than to posit that she was a poet of disability. So I distinguish then between two types of recovery work. On the one hand, I wish to recover Dickinson as a poet whose poems might be understood as disabled, but without resorting to diagnosis, which is one of the primary modes of evidence by which historical figures are linked to disability. So hence, I attend to poems, as you'll see shortly, um, that often seem to have very little to do with disability in the terms we understand it today. Diverging from the classic recovery narrative, which attempts to bring into renewed visibility historical figures who have been elided from the canon, I take instead a widely known literary figure and propose that the recovery and recovery work need not entail overcoming disability, but reckoning with its presence. As David T. Mitchell and Sharon Snyder note, the problem with disability is not that it's hidden from history, but that it pervades cultural narratives. Quote, disabled people's social invisibility has occurred in the wake of their perpetual circulation throughout print, and I would also argue manuscript history. My efforts constitute less a recovery than a recentering, a way of questioning why we may have forgotten Dickinson's disabilities, even as they have stared us in the face. In a longer version of this paper, I assess the poet's presumed agoraphobia, proposing that her references to materiality and use of space on the pages of her early poems implant spatial constraints that temper feelings of expanse or openness. I also explore poems that make explicit reference to blindness, both metaphorical and literal, and consider how Dickinson's eye strain in the mid-1860s, right at the height um, of her poetic production, temporarily influenced the presentation of her poems in bound form. But for the purposes of today's presentation, I wish to focus on Dickinson's final poems, which were written on small scraps of paper and are referred to as fragments. I posit that Dickinson's preoccupation with mortality influenced 
the unbound and fragmented form of these late poems? What if we were to recenter the importance of impairment in Dickinson's oeuvre and assume that the, well, <coughs> me, that the most well-known facts concerning the enigmatic Belle of Amherst are about disability, revealed not just in the poet's body, but by her poems themselves? So part one, disappearance. In the final decade of Dickinson's life, she stopped writing on standard sheets of stationary paper and began drafting her verse on a range of material surfaces, wallpaper, concert programs, recipes, receipts, grocery lists, the back of telegrams, and even a chocolate wrapper, which is kind of exciting. Um, so here you can see, uh, this is a range of the different fragments that are available in kind of an aerial, aerial view. Scholars have speculated as to why Dickinson turned to these oddly shaped papers in the concluding stage of her creative practice. Many see the poet's proliferation of scraps as a response to the numerous deaths of close friends and family. But given Dickinson's increasingly poor health, she might also use the scraps to confront or even substantiate her own mortality. In both June and October of 1884, Dickinson suffers a spell. So this is a direct quote from her. Eight Saturday noons ago, I saw a great darkness coming and knew no more until late at night, she wrote to her cousins Francis and Louise Norcross. I woke to find Austin and Vinnie in a strange position bending over me, unconscious for the first time in my life, end quote. So in shifting from fascicles, which were bound booklets of poems, to sets, which were unbound individual sheets, to then scrap poems, Dickinson stages more universal scenes of disability, where the frailty of the body surfaces in the text itself. Employing writerly materials that intensify bodily weakness, her transition from pen to pencil and bound booklet to loose scrap work in some ways to facilitate her eventual erasure as author. So Dickinson moves from a poetics of closure to one of disappearance, where disability is less about a specific bodily or mental impairment than it is about her proximity to death. Whereas her early poems about agoraphobia emphasize spatial constraints, her late fragments confront the limitations imposed by time. So her 1873 scrap poem, again written on a torn envelope flap, echoes this sentiment. Um, so she writes, in this short life that only lasts an hour, and then there's a variant word merely underneath only, uh, how much, how little is within our power. And so this is on an upside down envelope flap. Um, the smallness of the scrap serves to emphasize this short life. Dickinson's verse fills the entirety of the fragment. The quantity of much is written on the larger half of the envelope flap, whereas little takes up narrower space. Finally, the word power is somewhat ironically squeezed into the envelope's tip, suggesting that our capacities are severely limited when confronted with a finite amount of time and only a small amount of paper. In their work on material texts in early modern England, Peter Stallybrass and Roger Chartier note that books were meant to capture an author's immortality. Quote, the textual leaves that time had scattered could be brought together in the material form of a book, end quote, thus rendering transient literary forms like the pamphlet more permanent. Of all of Dickinson's modes of textual presentation, the fascicles appear closest to book form. Preserved in the trunk of Dickinson's family's maid, the bound booklets express endurance in a way that the scraps, which were variously scattered throughout Dickinson's writing desk, do not. Prior to suturing Shakespeare's scattered leaves, the editors of his first folio of plays referred to the strewn sheets as seripitous copies, maimed and deformed. So not unlike these sheets, Dickinson's late scraps undo the link critics established between her poems and immortality. 
The frail fragments of paper reveal instead a poet whose body and her poems have reached their ends. The scraps, in other words, were perhaps not meant to be saved, but to disappear. The virtue of ephemera is that they are, as Dickinson wrote in an 1885 letter to the Norcross cousins, quote, permanent temporarily. And around 1885, Dickinson scribbles on a white um, piece of white stationery that's torn and cut with scissors, strength to perish is sometimes withheld. The act of perishing, in other words, is much harder than preservation. Focusing on Dickinson's relationship to mortality does not necessarily discount recuperative efforts towards the poet and her poems, but encourages readings that attend to the uncertainties that she introduces into the act of writing, the obstructions, impossibilities, cessations, and hindrances imposed by an aging body and its text. In the fall of 2013, John Bourbon and Marta Warner published Emily Dickinson, The Gorgeous Nothings, which many of us might be familiar with, a 255-page volume featuring 52 of Dickinson's late poems, which were written on envelopes. Praised for their careful assembly of the poet's most fragile materials, both artist and scholar render these transitory objects easily accessible to a broad range of readers. In Holland Cotter's New York Times review, he describes the, quote, coffee table-sized book as an impressive object, both indispensable and complete. Intended, perhaps, to confer Dickinson a final victory, the edition resurrects her late poems, which until recently were considered the unfortunate effects of what Werner describes as, quote, a prolonged period of diminished or blocked productivity. By transcribing what Melinda and Tom Bigham once deemed impossible, um, a jumble of words on odds and ends of paper into more legible reproductions of Dickinson's poems, the gorgeous nothing transforms Dickinson's faint and often jumbled strokes into more permanent marks orienting the scraps towards a viable future rather than an end. When the brittle fragments are converted into high-quality photographs and bound in a hefty four-pound book, the poems are no longer subject had they once been left or had they been left in Dickinson's desk drawer to disintegration or erasure. Dickinson's final poems invite a number of questions about the ethics of editing, intentionality, and the role of biography in printing collections of poems. Do scholars' heroic efforts to preserve these late fragments risk dismissing Dickinson's attempt to acknowledge her impending death? And more importantly, can we edit Dickinson's poems with her body and its limitations in mind? Okay, so part two, this is the conclusion. Weak is weak is weak. Mental and physical disabilities are everywhere in Dickinson's poems and their reception. Early reviewers suggest that Dickinson's disabilities preclude her future as a poet. In later criticism, disability is present, but these accounts argue that her disabilities are irrelevant because she was a genius. I re-emphasize disability in Dickinson's work not to arrive at these same conclusions, but to consider how impairment is central to her task of making poems. Unlike contemporary scholarship, which often attempts to cure a disabled Dickinson by understanding her manuscripts and her broader references to materiality as symptomatic of her creative capacities, and this is common with a kind of agoraphobia reference, right? The fact that she kind of confined herself in her home as enabling um, her poetic output. I propose that her poems offer a theory of disability that emerges from the material text. Reading for disability, though, demands a different kind of interpretive practice. Whereas narratives of overcoming imbue their literary objects with strength, Y. Chijinik advocates for a weak theoretical approach to literary texts as a means of rethinking the totalizing claims that have been central to contemporary critical arguments. What could be said, Dinnick asks, 
for a critical practice that does not try to clinch the case. Adopting Dimmick's weak theoretical approach, Elaine Friedgood and Kenan Schmidt encourage technical and denotative modes of reading fiction. They suggest that interpretations of the literal have been traditionally difficult for literary critics. To read for the literal, the body and page might get us stuck. To read literally, they write, is to read slowly, even stumblingly. It is not efficient and will not make for increased productivity. Modeling a different pace, the labor of reading literally, that is reading for bodies, impairments, and their relation to the material text is slow and faulty rather than quick and efficient. What if rather than figuring Dickinson's constraints as inversely freeing, or casting weakness as itself a mode of triumph, we instead try to read, however stumblingly, what has traditionally gone unread in Dickinson? What if we attend to our descriptions of stoppage and our own moments as readers of being stumped? To read for what Virginia Jackson calls, quote, the material circumstances of writing, and not, quote, what that writing will be taken to figuratively represent, we would register constraint, both bodily and textual, as emerging in the technical and literal modes of Dickinson's composition. So I'm going to end um, quickly with this 1865 set poem, which is not written um, on a fragment. Uh, but here Dickinson positions reading and writing practices in relation to what we might describe as something akin to disability. Um, so I'll just read the first few lines, because I know I'm short on time. Uh, but not to discover weakness is the artifice of strength, is, is how it starts. Um, so the poem has often been misread as a decree for overcoming weakness and endorsing strength. The opening line is tricky. Um, it appears that Dickinson finds weakness undesirable, hence her framing of the line in the negative, but the poem proceeds to question instead whether the omission of weakness constitutes strength. The poem posits, in other words, that readers' refusal to unearth weakness equips them with only a false sense of fortitude. The poem might be understood as a manual for a disabled approach to reading Dickinson's archive. To ignore weakness in our readings of Dickinson is to render strength a sham, a contrived strategy that masquerades as what Dickinson terms ableness. And what's interesting about the poem is that she's really activating some of the same words um, used in disability theory, like ableness, right, in this very early poem. Um, so to end, Dickinson foregrounds her relation to weakness, delay, and dissolution, revealing that she agrees in part with her early critics like Bates who were attuned to all she was unable to do. Weakness necessitates that we let the material world act on us, often in ways that might be disabling, rather than us acting on it. Reading for weakness rather than strength might entail a simple recognition of how disability, from agoraphobia to vision impairments, to her own mortality emerges as an everyday concern for Dickinson. Understanding Dickinson as a poet of disability registers these limitations and reframes Dickinson's writerly practice, practices as influenced as much by genius as they are in possibility. When we have looked elsewhere to correct rumors about the myth of Amherst tucked away in her bedroom, perhaps she was there all alone, hunched over her paper drafting poems. So I think that we should um, jump immediately into Q&A. So I'd like to invite the panelists to come up. I'm going to turn this off. It'll blind you. Here we go. OK. And yeah, in the interest of time, I won't read out um, Professor Barr's response, but instead I'll, I'll open up the floor to, uh, to questions. 
I'd be happy to. Um, although I'm not going to be able to say much because unfortunately we really know very little. Um, it's always been assumed that the people who painted the Codex Duran are probably indigenous artists, that they're um, Nahua people living in central Mexico 50 years after the conquest. Um, and the reason that they assume that is because the only projects that we know about, like the Codex Duran, were painted by indigenous artists. But in the case of this manuscript, um, there's no place where the author talks about the process of making it, which sometimes happens in other books. And so they are probably Nawas, but we don't know for sure. And um, the book does look different from other manuscripts produced around the same time by Aztec descendant artists. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So one of the interesting things that I didn't mention is that this earlier set of illustrations is actually largely based on a manuscript that does seem to be a copy of an Aztec manuscript. And so someone who's working on this earlier project has an Aztec descendant manuscript in hand as they're painting. Whether it's an European descendant person who is making a copy of an Aztec book or um, a Nawa person who has a book that they've gotten from another Nawa artist is unclear, but um, it is true that part of the story of the evolution of style has to do with the fact that these earlier paintings were based on an Aztec book um, that doesn't get used at all in the later set. Thank you all for a great panel. I have a question about temporality, which is partly selfish, but partly coming directly out of Megan thinking about the temporality of waste in her paper. Um, I was interested in thinking about the temporalities of reading um, and creations that are a part of um, all of the papers. Nev, you talking about, um, on the one hand, the gaps and fragments in the manuscript, but also the kind of temporality of it being reinstalled recently. Um, Chris, thinking about the paste and copy and um, transfer of images between this manuscript at different points. And Claire, thinking about these fragments within a kind of life history, late in life, but also um, the way that we've attended to them. Um, and I wondered what kind of theories of time were operating. Megan, you were talking about how waste both um, is both anticipatory and also lost at the same time. So I wondered if time is useful for all of you as a, as a category for thinking about um, these moments of loss and degradation and fragmentation. I can, um, I think it's interesting to think about how they index time or the fact that they are referring to an ancient text by those the Kuna or the, or the Gemwe, for example. That's a moment that time is significant for them. Um, it's also interesting, I didn't think about that before, but we kind of, when we talk about our presentation of the text, in ancient times, it wasn't supposed to be presented for a long time. It maybe it was used in a ritual and then disposed with a deceased. We kind of force it now to be on display. Um, it's an eternal text, so it's supposed to exist for eternity with the deceased. But we kind of now put it on display for eternity, maybe, but for a long time now. Um, and this kind of change kind of also makes us try to tell a story that it wasn't supposed to tell, almost, um, to present this itself to numerous a large audience that wouldn't otherwise see it. Uh, it's interesting to think about that to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about time in relationship to constraint, right? So Dickinson has great descriptions in some of her letters of using this nearby hat factory, um, the whistle, to structure her work regime, right? So we often think about her as like, you know, just this like immortal figure and fascinated with immortality, and she's actually like, no, I want to end my work when the factory whistle ends, um, which is interesting. But yeah, I think Megan's descriptions of of time and waste are fascinating. Um, and, and one of the things, the struggles I've been having with um, my project that uh, your paper helped me, me think more about is we, what do we do with kind of preservation, right? Preservation has sort of like a linear time narrative, right? Um, and I think that sometimes like, these types of materials are disrupting that in ways that I haven't been able to reckon with. Um, so. I like the idea of, of thinking about, about um, fragmentary objects is disrupting a linearity. So if, if one thing that I, I think I want this work to do, this is still, this is very new, and I, one thing I think I want it to do is um, if we if one mantra of book historical work or even more broadly new historicism has been always historicized, and that often takes the form of constructing narratives. I wonder if there are other models for thinking about the lifespans of these objects and for structuring the ways we, we um, uh, approach them in our scholarship. So for me, because I, I'm obsessed with poetry, that might be, I wonder if there could be something like a lyric time and how like a lyric time rather than a narrative time might, might shape our scholarship. Yeah, it strikes me that something that so many of your papers were thinking about is the way that either sort of conspicuous absence or obvious fragmentation and recombination sort of force us to read differently. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way that they kind of don't just invite but almost require kind of new ways of reading. Um, and it seems like that's such a, that can be such a useful aspect of emphasizing those parts of um, how we think about text and especially the kind of materiality of texts. Um, yeah, other questions? Well, I have a question, jumping on that, um, which is sort of um, for you, Chris, but might have applications generally. But I was curious about, so you were talking about the way that the, I liked your idea that those images, the kind of new images that were kind of collages, mm -hmm. were sort of necessarily disorienting and necessarily sort of hard to kind of reconcile and see. And in that sense, they're sort of making their hybridity or I don't want to say artificiality, but something like that kind of visible. Um, and I was wondering if that, I mean, how aware do we think a reader would have been of that new text that they were looking at something that was a kind of new version of an old text? I mean, I guess, how visible was the shadow right. text? And, and, and is it ever uh, explicitly mentioned in the text of the manuscript itself? Does it signal its, its indebtedness or its, its, its you know, part of this participation in this sort of textual lineage? Right, so I, I think I hear in that a bit of a text and image question, um, whether the text acknowledges that these images come in essence from a different campaign. Mm -hmm. And the odd thing, um, and it's kind of a frustrating thing actually for me, is that looking at the text, the text refers very often to the images themselves, but it refers to them as if the images are proving what the text has said. Um, and so it's, it's dead set on the faithfulness of the illustration. Um, there's also, and you know, trying to sort of, um, the other part of that question, reconstruct 
the extent possible, the viewer from the 16th century and seeing whether they can, whether they're aware of the artificiality of this. There's an interesting part of this question, um, of the story of this manuscript, which is about transmission. So something like 20 years later, um, the entire thing is copied in black and white um, by a different hand. And uh, again, we don't know who the artists of this new copy are. But what they've done with those collage pictures that don't make sense is that they've acted as if it was sort of fine from the beginning. They make a new version of it, and they do a little, a few corrections here and there so that the space isn't quite off, but they seem to be um, less aware or unaware or unconcerned by the problem that I see in the manuscript about um, the way that it sort of contradicts what's in the history. And so I think it's possible based on that to say that maybe a viewer of this wouldn't have seen these collage images as possibly being quite as artificial as I see them being. Um, but that also might be a very uninformed copyist, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know if someone else has. mention his name again because I, I find him fascinating is Amenhotep son of Haku. Catch your name, Amenhotep, that's the name. And he lives in a very interesting, interesting time in which um, some people can, I mean, some scholars talk about scholarship. Um, it's definitely a time in which in autobiographical texts you see people talk about their knowledge of texts and of difficult texts and their ability to interpret or understand phrases that are difficult. Um, and sometimes some of these refer to um, kind of, I mean, knowledge of the divine is difficult to define. Um, in, it's kind of, I mean, it's a different culture and, and a, lot of, a lot of what we define as divine is, um, is slightly different, um, but he, de he definitely belongs to that group, but he's a very kind of outlier because um, they often talk about interpretation and reading and he says something that sounds like composition, even or create or filling out, rather than just uh, uh, just reading and, and being able to understand. And that's that's what I find unique about him. After him, so in, in kind of two hundred years after him, you have even, even kings who go into a library and say that they were able to open a text and read it and understand. What, uh, of course, no one else would understand but them, uh, which is very much tied to the divine. Uh, with him, it's more, he's more careful about it, and it seems also from later in that text that it might relate to kind of um, magical texts in a way. Um, but again, the, div the, the division between magical and religious are 
difficult to say, but he does talk about himself as someone who is able to create efficient texts. And, um, and when, when I'm saying that he was deified later, so about 1,000 years later, they rem remember him as someone who's been able to produce those kind of magical texts. Um, so he's tied somehow to that tradition. I have a question, actually, Excellent. Uh, about waste. So what I found interesting is that those examples are waste, but within the kind of book history or the book culture. Of course, in other culture, I mean, in ancient Egypt, you can find papari being used as real waste. So mm -hmm. when you produce coffins or some what, cartonnage, you would use text as just as material. Uh, we, one of the major texts we have was just used thrown in fill to a, a ram. So you wonder if it's like, what was the use of that? Um, where do you, I mean, it, do you see differentiations in, in how you think about texts that are waste within the book history tradition, texts that are just completely waste? So, but yeah, and they show up everywhere, right? So we have poems about, about using texts as toilet paper or, or wrapping pies or um, polishing shoes with them. Um, I think I think these are of the, just this category of waste is slightly different because it has been recuperated and preserved in a way that still asks us to recognize it as being degraded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I I'm interested in the um, in the, the potential. I mean, so it was saved because these were potentially valuable texts, but we still we can sort of read them and we sort of can't read them, and so we're asked mm -hmm. to reconstruct. Um, we're asked to, re to reconstruct them through, but, but to hold on to their brokenness in a way. And that's fascinating yeah. to me. And maybe it's... Um, and they still exist as texts in, I mean, in, in, in a way. I mean, or their environment reminds us, might remind us that they're texts. That they're texts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Exciting, you know that Letitia 
prevented these things from being discarded. She prevented a lot of things from being discarded. Um, and they're waiting for scholars like you to come to them and recognize their value. And you know, along the way, we can recover women's voices and other, other um, the voices of classes of people who are not part of the canonical textual record. So there's another lease um, that actually, I, his first name is Nathaniel, and I can't remember. I think it's. I think he's married to a woman named Joan. Mm -hmm. I can't remember their last name, but they, they're described as laborers, mm -hmm. um, and they. And I, I think I wasn't able to figure out yet which STC book that okay. corresponds to. But again, I mean, they're attached to they're attached to a literary <coughs> history in a in a way, or a desire yeah, for a literary history. That book. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the other question is what you decide to read. So are you? So I showed you the inside of that binding, but that was there was an outside, um, and the outside of this lease, so the the verso of the manuscript or the outside of the binding of this one was not that interesting. But there was one I showed you in the beginning. I showed you the outside of the binding, and it has on the the torn up spine. There's a it's very faded, but it looks like a table or a list of the con the pamphlet contents that were bound into this manuscript. So you can read, you can read on the one side, you can read the original history, the original legal history, or you can read the history of reading that's, mm -hmm. that's attached to and, and carried along on the outside, mm -hmm. on the backs of these, yeah. of these legal documents. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the two major classes that are used for these kinds of bindings are pre-Reformation, you know, antiphonals, missiles, and other things, and then legal documents. Um, so so, and the folder, there, there is a whole other, I think it's XD 516s, the liturgical manuscripts. Mm -hmm. they, just, they, they ended up in a different category um, because of their content, right? So they're, they're a high, there's a hybrid history of form and material form and content. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like a possible collaborative project in addition to your, your book project <laughs> for libraries to sort of pull these all together and look for those patterns because they could reveal practices about, you know, how law offices and Scrivener's offices work. Mm -hmm. I mean, even today you can go into random little bookshops in England and find just heaps of old deeds and things that were just sort of left over in lawyers' offices and mm -hmm. they didn't want them anymore and it sort of ended up in these, these booksellers' offices. But how they would discard and the sorts of relationships they might have with bookbinders or other people in terms of like you know, get, giving waste to Second Life. Um, what was interesting about this, this just this one very small call range, so they they weren't um, there weren't errors that I saw. There there weren't words that were scratched out. They seemed to be clean copies. So I don't know if yeah. that's because those are the ones Letitia saved. I you know I just there's so many gaps in the history that we can't figure out. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't know because we can't see the signatures or the seals, whether it's like the copy that the lawyer kept or that the copy that the buyer or the seller kept. Or exactly. You know, who's whose book it was, if there is a real connection between the covering and the book in terms of readership of the literature. Okay, I think we should, uh, I should not keep you all here because there's the reception, um, and that's important, but would you please join me in thanking our wonderfully diverse uh, <laughs>